we're here competing with the world, demonstrating how collaboration in cyber innovation really works. This is about building the ecosystem, building Australian capability to grow our industry and grow the country. The sector itself is growing at such a rapid rate and there's no reason why Australia can't be the centre of gravity. Absolutely connect with cyber, connect now, think big and think global. Game on. Welcome to episode 19 of AusCyber Unlocked, AusCyber's program to help Australian businesses across the economy deepen their understanding of the thriving cybersecurity sector. Listeners, it's International Women's Day right around the corner on the 8th of March, and we thought we'd take the opportunity to speak to some of Australia's leading women in cyber and technology. We've come a long way in the cybersecurity sector, but of course, there is still so much work to be done when it comes to not only women's representation in our industry, but also diversity more broadly. What can we be doing to encourage a larger voice of women in cybersecurity? And how can we ensure that the pay gap faced by women today is closed once and for all? Today, I want to talk about the gender diversity in leadership roles in Australia as well as focusing in on technology and then cyber within that. The data shows that despite the clear business case for gender parity, women are still significantly underrepresented in senior executive teams across the nation's top public companies, as well as being underrepresented in the pipeline for these roles. To break it down, women make up 50% of the population in Australia, true story, and 60% of our university graduates. However, only 26% are in the executive leadership teams of the ASX 300 listed companies, and only 6% of Australia's ASX 300 companies have a female CEO. You heard me right. Women's representation across all sectors is, of course, an extremely important step to advancing gender equity, and with our guests on this pod, we are going to try and focus on what we need to do over the next 12 months and longer to accelerate this change that we've been talking about so fiercely over the past couple of years. This month, I'm joined by Kate Pounder, Chief Executive Officer of the Technology Council of Australia, Professor Leslie Seebeck, Honorary Professor at the ANU, and on this month's Spotlight, I'm joined by Melinda Salento. Chief Executive Officer of CEDA, to talk about the economic cost of a lack of diversity. There is so much to discuss. Let's jump in. Kate, Leslie, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of The Pod. It is around International Women's Day of 2022. I feel like we were here only five minutes ago to do the 2021 uh, pod for the same occasion. But of course, so much has actually changed since last year. I'm not sure, though, that we can say that's changed for the better, but maybe also not for the worse. I want to start with the reality that us women are facing right now, and then, of course, we can move into what we think needs to be done to actually generate some real change. We've had so many conversations happening at the national level. Are they hitting at the lower level, in the local level, though? Obviously, we've had Brittany and Grace really leading the charge on this. Kate, I'm going to start with you. Women, of course, are outnumbered two to one in Australia by men in positions of power. These are the jobs that shape our politics, our law, our technology, our culture. How can we shift this to head towards a bit more equality? I think it's a great question. And firstly, I am starting to see a shift. I've had this interesting problem for the first time in my career in this job where I often turn up to a meeting with other senior leaders and they're all called Kate. So we've had to start saying not everyone in tech is called Kate. You know, if I think about, you know, Jane Hume's advisor or the chief of staff to Ed Husey, Kate Boyd, 
Kate Jones on my board. So I kind of think that's a nice problem to have, you know, when you're so accustomed perhaps to having a male-dominant industry. And I think there's some other signs of change, certainly in our industry as well. You know, the chair of the TCA is Robin Denholm, who also happens to be the chair of the biggest privately held company in the world, Tesla. We have Mel Perkins in Australia, who is the CEO of one of the biggest privately held software companies, you know, a 34-year-old you know, woman who's found her own company. I look at Catherine McConnell with Bright, who's really revolutionising how we finance that clean energy trend. So I think... There are some shifts starting to happen. The fact we have Jane Hume, you know, the Minister for the Digital Economy, who's a woman as well. So there are some shifts starting to happen. I think that, you know, we know from evidence is a few things that are key. Having good role models, making sure that women aren't discouraged from taking executive positions or from um, moving into the kinds of careers that typically set them up for it. And that might be in technical roles and sales roles as well as, in some of the areas of a business that women tend to congregate in. I think that getting more women into tech is a huge part of that. It's one of the fastest growing sectors of the economy. It's a really valued skill now on boards and amongst management. And it's there's also a lot of emerging evidence that it's a sector where women have been best able to balance career and family, both in Australia and globally. And that actually means it has a lower gender pay gap and it's more possible for women to stay on in senior roles. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that tech work tends to be quite substitutable as opposed to work which has deep personal relationships like medicine or consulting or law where it becomes really hard for a woman to get another person and team to do the role. So I actually think that structural change, we're getting more women into the fast-growing sectors of the economy, more women in more diverse positions, and then having great role models uh, is really critical to that change. Absolutely, uh, 100%. And I think we look at cybersecurity specifically, my observation in response to what you've just said is that we've seen a massive uptick in the number of women in particularly junior roles, and this is of the younger age groups that are coming through the pipeline work that has been done over the past five years in particular, to improve the visibility of what it looks like to be a cybersecurity professional and how that diversity is so important at all ranks and files of cybersecurity. But we've got obviously a lag point here, and Leslie, I'm coming to you now on this, around uh, we've got, as Kate just said, do have an increasing number of women in quite senior roles. But actually when we look at the stats, as much as it is changing, we, we still are facing a situation where there are only 18 women who are CEOs in the top 300 ASX-listed companies, only 18, in the sense of a CEO position, we've gone backwards. How did we get there? That's a very good question. You know, it wasn't supposed to be that way. I mean, when I start, first started in the workforce, which is longer ago than I care to remember, <laughs> so sort of back, you know, the age of the arc, et cetera, you know, the story very much was, Look, you know, it will come. You know, women are coming up. They're coming up through, you know, tech ranks. They're coming into law. They're coming into medicine. All these things will happen. It will naturally happen because there is such a flood of women coming into these roles, you know, in these professions and these roles in companies. And when you look at things like law and so on, there are more women, you know, graduating with law degrees than there are men, yet that is also still dominated by men. So part of the question is, you know, look, there's lag factor and the lag factor is just, you know, it's taking way, way too long. It is inexcusable. I think part of the issue here, particularly in Australia, tends to go, you know, fall back to understandings of risk. And I hate to use that because it implies that women, taking our women into these roles is a risk. That is just so wrong. What we're actually looking at is discomfort. 
It has been pushing people outside the comfort zone. And the unwillingness of, you know, for people to be men, let's be frank, it's men, but it's also is women as well. You know, there's this issue about competition, which is one of those nasty sort of, you know, often undiscussed issues that we have, is that people feel uncomfortable. Now, if you're uncomfortable with this, how are you going to cope with geopolitical competition, competition in the marketplace, new and emerging technologies, new financial models? This is almost a lead factor for the success of your economy. So if you can't get women to these roles, it says a lot about the culture, the broader economic, business, political, social culture that we have. And so we have this distorted idea of what success is and what it looks like. And unfortunately, I do tend to think it does lead us into a path of sameness, comfort, mediocrity. I think the issue that we have to address is less about the women, because as I said, we've got all these talented women coming through. We know that they're there. It's about addressing those networks, those power structure, and you know, and particularly, let's make the discussion, instead of expecting women to change, what about the men in the workplace? What a great way to segue. I love that point. Thank you. And, of course, there are plenty of men around the place who are champions of this shift as well. But, you know, I think what we I can observe there out of what both of you have just said is that we're, we're probably doing quite well in the the lower ranks, the middle ranks, and actually we have seen a moving of the needle at the board level. It's just at that sort of top of management level where we do have some champions there, as Kate identified, but we need more. And of course, the stats have just shown that 18 women in CEO positions in the top 300 ASX listed companies. So listeners, cast your minds back about 12 months ago. In fact, it was a little bit less than 12 months ago. We all did a census. Can anyone remember doing the census? (laughs) (laughs) I actually don't. (laughs) I know that I completed it, so please don't come after me for a fine. I know I did it. But it was was just part of the mess that was 2021. But there was some really interesting data that has come from that in terms of the last five years, And, and that is specific to this issue that it will take 65 years, so in the year 2086, I'm not sure if I'm actually going to be around then, or women will hold 40% of roles in executive leadership teams in Australia. Just Let's just let that sink in for just a little bit. 2086 before we've not even reached 50% of executive leadership teams in Australia. Now, that's not just limited to tech roles. That's right across the economy. But clearly, we can't wait that long. We've got a whole range of discussions going on right now that we need to leverage to shift the needle here. Kate, how can we accelerate this change? I think there's a couple of things we can do and not to sound like a sort of spooky for the tech sector the whole time, but I actually think getting more women into fast-growing industries is really important because the trajectory for promotion is often a lot faster in those industries and also the industries that are growing most jobs. So, for example, there's been in the last 30 years, there's been 100 new tech sector companies created in Australia that are now worth $100 million, 67 of them were founded since 2010. So these aren't necessarily companies that have preconceived views of preconceived hierarchies, preconceived structures for getting ahead. So I actually think those new and emerging industries are a great way for women. And we have this problem sometimes paradoxically where those industries can also be ones where women are underrepresented. And I think that adds to skill shortages. I think that cuts women off from future economic opportunity as well as leadership opportunity. So to me, that's a really good place to start because we know they're only going to grow and if you get people into those earlier, they're more likely to be promoted and to be part of the future mix of leadership. I also think, you know, I thought a lot about this because this International Women's Day, the theme is breaking the bias. And so I've you know, been asked to speak on a few panels and 
like my reflection on this kind of goes to Leslie's point that I think we all play a role in bias. Like often it's a bystander effect actually that entrenches the bias, not an individual's actions. And so every one of us, you know, I have this rule now, whenever a young woman in a place that I'm working comes and asks for pay rise, I've said to everyone, the first thing I want you to say is thank you. Like understand that she's faced all this cultural pressure to not ask for a pay rise, to not ask for more money, to be told she's a bad person. And so if the first thing you say is, oh, look, that's really inconvenient or I have to take that away, it just reinforces that. So say thank you. Say, I know that was probably brave. I know this might have been the first time you've ever done that. Look, I'll have to go and look at it, you know, from a business perspective, but just make them feel that was a normal and acceptable thing to do. And then, you know, and I think if you took a lot of the instances of why do women not ask for jobs, why do they not apply for jobs, why do they get turned back, often we're all playing roles as bystanders where we have these moments in time where we can choose the outcome. So that's the second thing for me. That's incredible. Like that is actually really powerful, really powerful. Does anything anywhere in the world right now stop any of us saying thank you to a woman coming forward and having that courage? Nothing stops us from doing that. That's so powerful. Thank you, Kate. What's your take on this, Leslie? I'm going to add a slight caveat to what Kate said, and I don't disagree with her about the fast-growing sectors. In fact, I think we should learn from the past and say, actually, let's make sure this doesn't happen in the future. And that's because if you look at computing, pre-1970s when, you know, the geek guys and the stars of the Silicon Valley, you know, with their startups, et cetera, Women were very strong in computing. Again, precisely for the um, some of the issues you raised. Again, if you go back and look, think about the NASA astronauts, so strong maths, mm-hmm. working in computing, building those up. But they weren't recognised because it was seen as a service secondary industry, that back office. And we know that technology has often suffered from the same problem inside companies. Tech is just seen as a cost centre, the downtrodden back office, you hear the language, you get toxic environments and language about throwing things over the wall and all those sort of things. So I think we need to learn from that and think about that at a societal level more broadly. How can we actually avoid that happening again? You see, by the way, the same in academia. As soon as, you know, an area becomes populated and favoured by men, you know, we know the greatest thing, then it gets populated and run by sort of, you know, by a male cohort rather than women who might have been toiling that area for a while. So it's not just in technology. It happens across the board. So we need to find ways and mechanisms to overcome that. I would also just flag one other thing too, because another thing that is often raised with women, and particularly in technology, is that you haven't done the standard career. You didn't go in and become a geek and hack PlayStation, you know, when you were 10 years old. You didn't go off and become, you know, into your IT degree. And, you know, you go up that ladder. Many women go through, and partly because, they, you know, they have breaks in their career, a non-linear career structure. They go and do different things. They're quite, you know, can often be quite diverse. I've been picking up, you know, a whole range of things, whether it's waitressing, you know, when they're going through university, through to picking up a bit of law, then start realising interested in hacking or something like that, or that might be in science, but being excluded because the sexy stuff in science might be high-performance computing, but they've got all the skills to do the modelling. What I call the adjacent possible and the non-linear careers, and we need to actually recognise that. In the same way, we also need to make sure that we allow continual training, which we also know is good and necessary for a career in technology in particular, but it's accepted in medicine, law, all these other areas as well. But making sure there's flexibility, giving people sabbaticals, giving them one day a week, you know, giving women in particular opportunities, because training is also seen as an investment by a company, 
into the people and it will tend to preference when it's limited resources that bright shiny young you know male so it can be a female you know against someone who might be a boat older doesn't fit the mold and so that your point michelle earlier about diversity we need to find ways to make sure those mechanisms out of diversity are sort of in there and tacked down to the floor rather than being optional extras when people feel like it or they want to feel good Absolutely. And, you know, I think to be additive to what you've both said, of course, we can all show our ages, frankly, when we then come to gender neutral issues and how it's actually been within the technology sectors where we've seen the ability of people to be able to be their true selves, but also be completely vilified for it as well. Yes. And to be fair, that point about, you know, actually let's focus on the men goes back down to actually how do we actually make sure that men have paternity leave and, you know, don't suffer for it, et cetera, how they make sure they can also do that sort of that part of the heavy lifting as well. Mm, absolutely. So I, I think, you know, when we think about that 2086 milestone, let's go and kind of kill the crap out of it, right? So <laughs> 65 years, that is not okay for humanity Uh, It's certainly not okay for the Australian way around how we tend to deal with these things. Let's go the convict route and really actually see that as a negative and get to the next Olympics, not the Commonwealth Games, that's probably a little bit too close, but (laughs) certainly the next Olympics where we've actually brought all of that forward. As a sporting nation that we are, we can think about that in terms of how many Olympics would have been held in a 65-year period. That kind of brings me to this point about gender targets. They seem to be the only measure that's acceptable in a Western economy to be able to understand whether or not we're moving the needle on this stuff. You know, obviously the Labor Party in both the UK and Australia have both met their targets around gender quotas. The higher the organisation is on the ASX, the better the representation of women. We know that's got a lot to do with social licence though. The proportion of companies that have set targets around gender parity is at least 40% of gender in senior roles is significantly higher when you get to the ASX 100 and where we see that that's actually 50% compared to in the broader 300 ASX listed companies where this is sitting at 29%. This is a lot of stats, but of course, this is the point. Do we need to have gender targets in all leadership roles in Australia? Or do we actually think in our experience so far in a world that's accepted targets, do we think that this actually diminishes the role of women and add the achievements that we bring to the table? Leslie? I am conflicted. I've held for a long time that I do not agree with targets because I've always wanted to be seen and understood and appreciated for my own capabilities and potential. Second, because I genuinely believe that issue of parity would come over time. So for those two reasons, primarily, I've always, and again, there's a whole issue around implementation, how you do it and those sort of things too, which also requires, I think, you know, a fair bit of thought. Those two points earlier have not held true in my experience. We've all been through that sort of thing where we've seen, you know, some people that we know that we're inherently more qualified, we've got more experience, we've got more swag, but are overlooked for whatever reason. We're often not seen in terms of capability and potential and it hasn't delivered the results. And so I've come to the conclusion that we have to look at targets seriously, but, you know, at least to kickstart the process, we might end up having to sort of say targets until there is a critical mass and we know that it's self-sustaining. So, right, use it as a floor and have it as self-sustaining. If you fall down and start showing you know, performance and haven't already been punished through because of, you know, um, your shareholders are punishing you because you don't have the results or those sort of things, then potentially bringing that in. How do you manage that and how you oversee that? I don't know. But also I think, too, having those sort of targets in actually does contribute to a healthy environment. 
And we can see this at Parliament House where it doesn't, it doesn't always happen, it's not guaranteed, but, you know, those sort of areas where you're going to have more women, you're going to, and that's being mandated, you're going to tend to have a, a healthy environment for all. Mm, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it is vexed, isn't it? Kate, what's your take on this? I think I'm kind of with Leslie. I think there's also different levels at which you can set a target. You can set a target nationally, you can set it, or you can have yeah. monitoring, even if it's not a hard target. So you can just say what percentage of the companies are meeting it. You know, you publish that publicly. Companies yeah. can set individual targets. Like my view is that if you have a really serious structural underrepresentation problem, a target can be helpful. Hmm. So, you know, that was when we founded the tech council, we actually set a 1 million jobs target by 2025. And the reason was that people constantly underestimated how many people were working in the sector or could. And I kind of found unless you could just have a simple number and explain it to people, it was hard to get people aligned around the same outcome. So, you know, only one in four people working in tech are women. Like I think we'd get to a point where we'd say, should we set a target as an industry to make that higher? Uh, And, you know, you can make the same argument for leadership positions. I think though in practice, you know, if you want to get change at the company level, it actually takes a lot more than just a target. Like it takes good role modelling and the belief of the leadership. It takes a, a strong case of change narrative. It takes, you know, practical processes and reinforcement mechanisms and it takes kind of capability building often. So I don't think a target can be a way of motivating or embarrassing someone into action, but ultimately it's still the responsibility of individuals in that company or the sector, I guess, to take the action. So I don't think a target solves for that yeah. that piece that actually drives the change. I think as well, you know, I've seen some great examples like Invato is one of my members and, you know, they were telling me they had a, a real problem with underrepresentation of women in software engineering roles and so they kind of went and found like what was driving that and they looked at the different training options or ways to attract more women and they've now got to the point where 70% of their software engineers are, are female. Yeah. So I also think like where people... Yeah want to change the problem and you have that really strong support from the leadership, you know, from the CEO and the CTO and all the others in the business, like you can actually drive the change. I'm not sure they set a target to do it, but I think it actually took a will to solve the problem. Mm. I agree with that. And I think it can't be just one thing. And again, we've all seen examples too, where we know that those sort of metrics can be manipulated, used and fudged, et cetera, et cetera. Just on that, I do note that there's independent reporting now that you see in the States about venture capital, tech companies and so on, proportion of women measured against outcomes. There's a whole range of metrics where you can actually see benefits and that people are being held to account and you know, people are asking in shareholder meetings and so on, where are you women? Why are you meeting those targets? So it's a, it's a societal response as well. And then the other thing I just note, though, I do think it's more than just employer choice because, you know, we did some analysis of the Hilda data set over 20 years of what were the patterns of people entering the tech sector. And it's something like 90% of the people who come directly from training into tech roles in the sector, so who often study that technical undergraduate degree, are male. And the primary way that women enter the sector is actually as an early to mid-career transition between 25 and 30 or skilled migration, which actually has a 50-50 gender split. So I'm kind of like in some ways unless you actually fix some of those pipeline structural problems and cultural problems, you can't only solve that at the employer level unless often you're doing it through reskilling or through transitions into from the same role in a different industry uh, into tech. 
I think to be additive to what you've both said, which I found that that this part of the conversation is so fascinating because I really have struggled with this as well. And I've had some really great, robust discussions and debates with both men and women over the past five years about the role of quotas versus targets, whether they do work at the macro or micro level. I feel like there needs to be in that point about um, that both of you have made so well about it's not just one thing, it's not just about the target itself that there has to be something in there around contextualising it to the factors that support culture. You know, what we do know in cybersecurity, for example, is that now we don't actually have so much of a problem of attraction to the industry. We still have to sort of maintain the rage there, but we have a significant and growing problem with retention. And for women in particular and also people of other genders, particularly those who are fluid, the cultural dimensions within cyber are so not conducive still to this. And so I feel like if we're going to set some targets, which could be helpful because we need to kind of, as we've said, drive some things forward, but know when to take those out of the picture, let's also set some targets on culture. And I think that goes to your point, Kate, about how the management stepped in in your example and was able to kind of drive some outcomes from the top down. In cybersecurity, which I know is also a reflection particularly of the more advanced deep tech industries such as AI and quantum, we're already seeing some really serious issues happen in those particular segments because they're not industries in their own right just yet. Like, for goodness sake, don't be making the same mistakes that cyber have made. So that retention piece is going to become, I think, the issue of the day around workforce in our technology industries, and we've got a great microcosm of it in cyber. And when we link it through to the theme of this year's International Women's Day around breaking the bias, goodness, doesn't that come into play? So, Kate, coming back to you, what is the one change? I mean, this is always a challenging thing to ask as a host. What is the one thing that you would love to see this year get improved around gender balance and diversity in tech leadership in particular in Australia, which is obviously something that you guys at the council are doing a lot of work on? So one thing we've kind of called for is to reskill more women to go into tech, partly because I think one of the ways to get more women in leadership position is to take them more at that early mid-career stage and correct that imbalance that sort of occurred early because there's all these other things you can do in the school system, but they'll take sort of 10 years, 15 years to actually change, you know, that diversity mix. So I think that getting more women to transition into the sector is really key when they're so underrepresented. And I think there's a lot of economic evidence that it's a really important sector for women. As I said, the gender pay gap is a lot lower. Our own research tells us than other high-paying industries in Australia. It's got one of the highest rates of remote and flexible work, which often means that as women are navigating a transition, you know, often from um, having no children to then having young children, then to which often coincides with senior roles. It's actually one of the better industries to navigate that without having to trade off a senior role. And and it's also a great way to correct issues like superannuation imbalances. I was read a book by Claudia Golden over the Christmas break, who's a Harvard economist and Korean family, and she'd actually studied about 100 years of, of women's experience in work and divided women into five cohorts over time about whether they'd had to choose between career and family or if they had to, like, sequence them or if they ever were able to balance them. And and the only generation she said who's done it is the current Mm -hmm. one. And she said the biggest determinant of whether a woman could do it was actually whether they were in what she called a greedy job. So did this job take up a lot of your time? And even if you were, were you able to substitute your time for someone else? And it really resonated with me because I think 
finding those jobs where you have a great team, where you can hand over work, when you don't constantly have to be on call. Like it often is the thing for man or woman about whether you can stay in a senior role. Well, try to incorporate any other caring responsibility or other things in your life. And I like that really hit me as a very practical change that everyone can kind of think about in their workplaces is like, are we building these roles and these teams that are substitutable for each other? Because if we are, we're probably letting everyone actually get a much better modicum of work-life balance. That's really interesting. I like that term too. I'm going to use yeah. that greedy, greedy work. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like uh, maybe I've allowed my work to be greedy over the past 20 years. <laughs> Leslie, to finish off our conversation with you, I'm actually going to go a bit off script here. I know you'll love me for it. <laughs> when we think, right, um, you know, do we, when we think about the Leslie of 20, 21 years old, and for listeners that don't know Leslie well, Leslie's had like a really deliberate career, but actually started with going to university with a bunch of people who are very senior roles today in Australia. What advice would you give your 19 or 21 year old sort of self on what you would do different to learn about how you be a leader today? Oh, <laughs> that's a tough question. I mean, counterfactuals are fun, but I really struggle to think what a counterfactual for my own career would be in as much as I've realised over time that I'm the sort of person who gets not bored easily, but I like new challenges. And so one thing I've done is if I see an opportunity, then I say, gee, that looks interesting. Let's go and take that. So, yes, I mean, that has led me across from doing policy, technology, intelligence, doing strategy, in and out of academia, in and out of government. Yes, you know, it's, I still think I have another career in me. And so if I can go back to uh, something that Kate just said that really resonated with me for probably reasons that weren't intended, one of the things I've learnt over time is the importance of teams. So, you know, whenever you move into a new role, it's, you know, you're often recruited as an individual. But in reality, to be successful, you have a team around you. And as you go through life and your career, that team is increasingly going to be people, not just in your workplace, but in and out of your workplace. There'll be that group of friends that you went through hell together and you, you'll go and die on a hill for next time around. So find your team would be one piece of advice I gave. And that's something it took me a long while to learn. I'm still learning that one. Be prepared for the non-linear careers and because we're already talking about mid-career and so on. But the reality is it's not, again, I remember even 10, 15 years ago when people would say, look, you're going to have seven jobs. I think it's different now. I think you're going to have potentially three, even five careers where you sort of pick up and the trick is going to be not necessarily starting back from scratch, but sort of taking what you learn and all that good wisdom and knowledge, et cetera, and the connections you have because it's all about people ultimately, and taking that forward into the next one. So I can see people coming in, they might stop and start off with technology, they'll move into a public relations role, they might go into government, they'll come back, you know, making sure that there is a path back for them in technology, and potentially in a quite a new technical field, it might be cyber, it might be quantum, but therefore that's why I'm sort of emphasising the importance of having those training, those new education opportunities. And I think the university sector, the way it's so rigid, is working against us in many ways. And to be fair, when you look at the internet and all the opportunities available on the internet, I know my own children, they're having problems with maths, they'll sit down and work their way through YouTube videos, you know, and a few, you know, a few of the uh, you know, companies are on the line, they're doing that sort of thing. And it helps them immensely. That's how they learn these days, etc. The other thing I would say, so breadth, 
having those non-linear careers, being prepared to have those jobs and the bravery to do so, it can be quite hard and challenging for people. Some people do that, particularly when you're deeply invested in something. So there's that difference between what your profession, your vocation is, as well as what you're good at, etc. I have to admit, I feel a little bit disqualified to comment about what the university graduate of today, because I look at people like Grace Tame, who, you know, frankly, has got all her shit together so well, is so articulate. And I think of myself at the same age, and I'm going, oh, my God, I was, I, you know, was so incapable as, you know, by, by comparison. But the last thing I will say is support others, because I think that we all as a nation need that generosity of spirit that I feel that we are losing. You know, it used to be the fair go. Now it's, oh, you really think you can do that? So I really think that we need to give, you know, you know, we need to make sure the fair go is not fair gone. No, we need to make sure that we bring that back and we have open up and have that generosity of spirit to others and see the potential and opportunity for them as well. Wow. <laughs> wow. For springing that on you, that was pretty schmicko there, Leslie. Um, thank you. And so I am saying thank you. Listeners, I think we have traversed these issues, which are actually quite deep in their very nature, uh, I think, pretty well. And I'd love to get your feedback on these issues. Breaking the bias, you know, I'm going to say happy International Women's Day by saying also, let's break the bias by making sure that International Women's Day is not just for women. It is about women, but it's not for women. It's for everyone. And that's kind of the point about how we break the bias and say thank you for courage and say thank you to future self and previous self for being able to stand close to your values no matter how hard it might be. Thank you so much to both of you for joining us and take up the challenge to not get to 2086 and have only reached 40% women in senior executive positions in this country on that very bright note because we will break the mold by breaking the bias uh, thanks again both thank you thank you each episode we highlight one of the great companies or initiatives within the australian cybersecurity ecosystem but every now and again we take a diversion from this and this month i'm so excited that we are doing something a little bit different for international women's day I'm really excited that we're joined on the pod this month by Melinda Salento, CEO of CEDA. CEDA holds a very special place as one of the few independent bodies contributing to the discussion and debate around the national economic and social policies of this nation. Welcome to the pod, Melinda. Thanks, Michelle. I'm really excited to be here. You guys have been doing a lot of fantastic work, not just recently since the beginning of this year that we now call 2022, but actually over the past five years to really consolidate some of the discussion and also the availability of data around gender equality and the role that that has in our economy. What are some of the insights that CEDA has found through this research that you've been doing? So, Michelle, look, what we found at CEDA, the simple conclusion of so much research is that the more diversity and inclusion, the better. And you see that across all of the results, whether it's more women at the board level or greater gender diversity across an organisation. And I should say, you know, greater inclusion because diversity is one thing, but what really matters is making sure that diverse voices come to the fore in what's going on in your organisation. We know that as a society, if we focus on this as well, we can make progress. And we, we saw that through COVID. When we weren't focusing on women, women bore the brunt of the changes through the first wave of, of job losses. And when the conversation lifted and there was more assistance provided, then you saw better outcomes. So 
I think that's really the simple message. I can quote all sorts of numbers, but that's the basic facts of the matter. It's interesting. I, I, I'm, I'm intrigued by you mentioning that piece about how when the conversation lifted, you know, when we sort of were able to come back to a conversation that was more inclusive, more equitable outside of economic packages to support the economy during that first wave, that actually we did realise that we'd reverted to old behaviours is in essence what happened there, that we do need to maintain this kind of focus. So obviously you guys have done some work around understanding what the economic impact is as well as obviously the social impact of having a lack of diversity. This really does have an impact on the bottom line, doesn't it? Yeah, it really does. And let's look at the the number one issue that's right before us as the biggest economic challenge, which is lifting productivity. And productivity really boils down to creativity and innovation. And again, I can, you know, I can quote some numbers around this is the impact and productivity can be this much higher. But I really think the important thing is to actually just strip this down to the bare basics. If you want innovation, if you want productivity, you need creativity and you need diverse thinking. And that means stepping away from groupthink. That means bringing different voices and perspectives into your decision making. That's why gender diversity matters. I mean, people can sort of say, well, this is women's business and, you know, you cranky women are just pushing for too much and you just want better jobs and all the rest of it. But it's fundamentally better for our organisations and it's fundamentally better for our country, brings new perspectives, um, whether it's connecting to a different customer base, whether it's coming at something from a completely different sort of thought process. That's what we need to see more of, not less of, quite frankly. I'm going to agree with that, of course, and listeners, you would <laughs> know that that's the case. But of course, the, as, as Melinda's just described, there is actually a real economic benefit here and we feel it when we don't get that benefit. Of course, women are significantly underrepresented in leadership roles as well in Australia. And while change is happening, it's properly glacial. Cybersecurity has always been an industry that has struggled with diversity What changes do you think we need to make in our industry, Melinda, to be able to meet the gender balance challenge in a more sort of, I guess, accelerated fashion? But also I'd like to kind of throw in there the fact that it's not just women full stop. We also need the cultural diversity within women's representation and also the age diversity in women's representation. Let me make let me a couple of points, and I've got to give you a stat, which maybe you've or some evidence, if you like, that maybe you've already heard of. But I, I thought I should join the link to cyber for you in this podcast. And as I was preparing for the pod, one of the things I did was have a look at some of the research. And there's some research out of Canada that shows that when you have three or more female board members on your organization's board that actually you manage cybersecurity risks better, mm. both in the identification of those risks and the management of them. So uh, there's one specific issue right there that just says for your audience, they should be thinking about diversity. Now, let me go back to answering your question. What can we do? Well, it's all about em- employee value proposition, isn't it? And right here, right now, that's what everyone's talking about. And it's about creating workplaces where people feel welcome where people's ideas feel welcome and where the workplace is enabling the sorts of flexibility that they need. We've just had this great work from home experiment. We've learned an awful lot about what's able to be done. We've learned that we can trust our employees and we've learned that flexibility is good for women and also for men who, by the way, might want to go and pick their kids up from school or drop their kids off and and all the rest of it. So I think really that the biggest challenge and opportunities around the culture of workplaces and how you change that and how you reflect on that so that more people feel 
that they can be themselves in your workplace. And I know that sounds simple, but if you talk to people who've worked in the tech sectors, or if you even just look at the language around tech sectors, and it's got some way to go in terms of being hyper-competitive, the long hours of work, and almost the, the badge of pride around working and working and working and doing nothing else with your life. And, and I think that's, you know, those are the sorts of things that have to change. There are lots of examples of organisations who are changing, and that's where the competition is, quite frankly. So, you know, every CEO I talk to at the moment can't get the skills they need, particularly in the tech and data space. And they're really having to rethink what their value proposition is. And I think it's changed. It does need to be focused on attracting more people back to work and to each employer. And that really means sitting down and listening to what the people that you want to recruit, what they're interested in and how you make that happen. That's, a, I think, a great call to action. And I'll add to that by saying listeners, you need to document it as well. Make sure that it's transparent. Get these kinds of policies and positions onto your websites. And of course, that's a competitive advantage if you are doing so. But equally, of course, you can't demonstrate that you are going to live up to that value proposition if you're not able to publish it. That sort of sense of transparency is a wave that I think will continue to come. So Melinda, to wrap up this spotlight segment, what is the one thing that you hope we can achieve if we were to have come back this time next year, 2023, my goodness gracious, uh, that we will have sort of moved ahead on around the gender balance situation, particularly when it comes to leadership positions? Wow, that's a big question. Look, <laughs> I'd love to see more female CEOs just across all of our business community, quite frankly. And I know that, you know, maybe sounds simplistic and and like it's not connected to a lot of other women in different sort of circumstances or roles but I just do think that more female leadership would would actually help to move the dial and I know before we sort of came on we were sort of talking about targets and the role of targets and that's just been this thorny issue around you know that's it's a it's a blunt instrument but I think that's sort of where we're at. I think more organisations have to actually be explicit about their diversity targets and I'd like to see more organisations being explicit about wanting to get female leadership and if it's not at the CEO level, it's at the next level down and I think the more we get that, then the more change we'll see and it will happen without the need for blunt blunt instruments. Well, absolutely. Thank you. And, you know, that, that next level down piece is also really important for succession planning and making sure that we've got a pipeline starting to develop there. Thank you so much for your perspectives on this International Women's Day episode of Oz Cyber Unlocked. It's been great to chat with you, Melinda. Uh, always enjoy the chat, Michelle. Thank you. As usual, we've gotten through a lot of content in today's episode. Please make sure you jump into the show notes to look for all of the links that we've made reference to today. And if you're looking for more information about the Australian cybersecurity ecosystem and industry, make sure you go to Oz Cyber's website. If you're wanting to connect with the Oz Cyber companies that deliver Australian cybersecurity capabilities, make sure you jump onto AU Cyberscape, the digital ecosystem that shows everyone around the world what amazing cybersecurity companies and technologies Australia is delivering right now. And if you are looking especially about jobs and careers in cybersecurity in Australia, make sure you check out AU Cyber Explorer which shows you right down to postcode level where the jobs are and who are offering them. Thanks so much for joining us on this episode. If you've enjoyed today's podcast, make sure you follow us through your favourite source of great podcasts. 
leave a comment and be sure to give us feedback. And this will help others to find us too. If you want to be part of our growing ecosystem, sign up to be a friend of Ossiber's network. This will get you regular updates from Ossiber and our partners. You'll also be able to access the resources we've discussed today during the episode. Visit ossiber.com for more information.